Amen. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for <clears throat> giving the space this morning to speak. And uh, just thank you so much for your attentiveness over the next um, half an hour or so as we just share some stories about what's going on around the world. Um, I'm not going to waste any time telling you about myself because I'm the most forgettable element of this morning. Um, I hope that what you remember is some of the scriptures and some of the stories and just that you remember the church around the world in its context. We started out this morning reading Psalm 145, commend to the generations the stories of how God is at work. And, and we need to do that, but we also have the incredible privilege of commending to one another the stories of how God is currently at work all across the world. And I know you'll hear some stories this morning that really pray will encourage and strengthen and deepen your faith. Um, as I was praying about um, this morning, as is appropriate to do when you're speaking in a church, um, I felt the Lord just said this, it sounds a slightly trite kind of phrase, but um, boldness within brokenness. And I felt God wanted to speak that over you as a church about boldness within brokenness. And I think that's about how individually you kind of process faithfulness to God in the midst of sometimes painful circumstances. But I also think it's something about the call on you as a church. Actually how you are bold in engaging those who are broken. And, uh, and what I'm going to try and do is just share a few things this morning that hopefully kind of segue that message to you as a church uh, with some of the stories um, that Samuel and Teresa will share a bit later. So I'll try and do a 10-minute whistle-stop kind of contextualizing piece. Um, so stay with me um, as I do that. And the, the Colossians um, 4 verse that's uh, on there is chapter 4 verses are really express what the church around the world that is suffering most intently would be after from you as a Christian this morning and from this church. And the primary prayer for those who are suffering isn't that they'd be taken out of their suffering, but that God would give them boldness in the midst of that to declare the mystery of Christ. And that is a phenomenally challenging thing. As we gather here today, you need to be aware that there's more than 250 million Christians, our brothers and sisters, as part of the family God, um, who share our faith but do not share our freedom. 250 million Christians and more than that around the world that could not gather in spaces like this today. I was with a pastor from Syria recently. He's seen um, 500 people come to faith in the last two years, mostly from uh, Muslim backgrounds. But they can't meet as 500 Christians. They meet in 50 groups of 10. Because to meet in any larger numbers attracts attention and attracts persecution and attracts violence. That's quite a challenge, isn't it? When we, the way that we process and think about church in the West is often the bigger is better. And yet actually deeper is better and real is better. And you clearly are after that yourselves, which is great. I know it's, it's a hard reality to grasp within our setting, isn't it, that people are suffering as they walk in the ways of Jesus. Um, this last week, we've been down in, in Parliament. I mean, it was all of the Brexit uh, comedy kind of scene. Um, John, John Burko, it's not that funny in the grand scheme of life, but actually sitting in session and watching the MPs and watching uh, John Burko, you're just like... This is just ridiculous. This feels so infantile. I wanted to walk in, stride into chambers, or I'd have been arrested at the door and say, what on earth are you playing at? There's important things going on. But thankfully, the Lord hasn't drawn me into the world of politics. I think I'd, I'd get myself in a world of trouble. But we, we had a, a, a launch in Parliament on Wednesday with about, about 100 MPs and lords and ladies there. Just 
letting them know the reality around the world for Christians being persecuted. And some of those places is where we have trade agreements. And one of the things that we're advocating for is for the government to be conscious of where it's investing and where it's developing trade of um, the rights of freedom of religion. And if we can advocate on that level and see policy change, it actually changes the experience on the ground for people who are suffering, which is why uh, we do that piece. And at that, we launched uh, the World Watch List, which I think you'll have up on there. The World Watch List identifies the top 50 places in the world. It's not like top trumps. It's not like it's better to be at number one. But it identifies just the most challenging places um, to live and to walk out your faith as a Christian. And that expresses reality for about 245 million Christians. And you can see the 50 countries on there. If you go to opendoorsuk.org, you can see each one of those countries. And you can read of the reality of the situation in those countries. And when we think about the reality and the situation of persecution, this isn't a new phenomenon. I just want to give a quick introductory overview of the theme of persecution so you can more helpfully appropriate what our guests will share a little bit later. So what is persecution and why does it happen? In Paul's letter to the church in Colossus, he writes to his readers, which now includes us, that God would open the door for the gospel for which he is in prison. Paul is in prison because he's sharing the story of Jesus. If he didn't share the story of Jesus, he wouldn't be in prison. Persecution is a direct kind of reality because of choosing to tell the story of Jesus. And this was actually the experience for the emergent church that Jesus established to continue the ministry that he started. The New Testament was written by persecuted Christians to persecuted Christians within a context of persecution. That's the context. Context is really important. Otherwise, we misread things. And this narrative of opposition and persecution has continued all throughout church history and is equally true today. The reality is that at some point, the gospel costs. And that's not a negative reality. Often we associate costs as a negative thing. It's not a negative reality that the gospel costs. But it's actually it's a part of the refining of our spiritual formation, as Amy referred to earlier. Part of our maturation into the likeness of Christ. Part of our separation from the entanglements that diminish the depth of our intimacy with Jesus. God uses challenging, costly moments in order to deepen our dependency on Christ. Because as a result of that dependency, as a result of that attachment, almost like the channel of life flows deeper into you. It's like God opens wide just the veins and the arteries for us to receive the life of God by separating us from the things that would strangle that life within us. It's what Jesus spoke of in John 15. He said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute me. Persecution isn't a niche narrative on the sidelines that we need to kind of pay lip service to. Jesus defines it front and center that if you are going to live the alternative way of the kingdom, then you are going to clash with the status quo of society. If we read in 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13, just turn there. Peter declares that part of walking in the way of Jesus is about sharing in his suffering as well as in celebration. 1 Peter 4, 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And sometimes we have a, just an immature spirituality that we are surprised. We're like, why is this happening? God, if you're a good God, why on earth is this happening? That speaks more of just the entitlement of the world rather than it does the purposes of God. 
He says, don't be surprised. Did not Jesus say, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you? See, the narrative, the context of our expectation affects the way that we engage with our circumstances, either to see the redemptive richness and grace and kindness of God in all things, or to see somehow that these things are bigger than God. The whole swathe of just the church history and the whole swathe of salvation history demonstrates time and time and time and time again that nothing can separate us from the love of God. No circumstance can remove us from the love of God, no matter how painful. See, Peter normalizes suffering as part of the journey. And yet, as the church, we're so often guilty of adopting a consumerist gospel within which we adapt the message to fit around our lives. That actually we become the center and God pivots around us rather than he's the center and we pivot around him. We adapt the message to suit our aspirations. The problem is we create fake news in Donald Trump language, fake news that doesn't represent reality and doesn't stand the test of reality. The reality is that suffering is part of life. I don't say that in a joyous way. we suffering, bring it on. But actually, to say that suffering isn't, it's just not true. And the problem is then when you do face something that's suffering or something that's hard or something that's painful, and we're not anticipating or expecting it, we become like, well, God, where are you? And yet, actually, God is with us. And many of you, I'm sure, will painfully know that. And yet, this doesn't represent God's absence. It's an opportunity within which we access his redemptive presence. Three years ago, just out of the blue, my dad went running in the park, as he often does. And he had a coronary heart failure in the midst of that run, and he, he collapsed on the floor, and, and he died. And it was a complete shock to the, to the family system. You know, as far as we knew, he was in good health. He just kind of went out running. And for me, it's a huge loss um, of probably you know, my best friend and also somebody who's a real spiritual mentor to me. And yet, actually, if I look back at that time three years ago, it's probably one of the holiest moments that I've known because the tenderness and the kindness of God in the midst of that suffering was just really profound and really, really rich. And I'm not saying that just to kind of somehow justify or take away from the reality of pain. Pain is pain. But actually, there's a beautiful and comforting truth which I've even more profoundly experienced in connecting with the persecuted church is that actually Christ is profoundly present in the most painful circumstances. And I hope that that's whatever story you're in at this moment in time, or whatever story is kind of weighing heavily on your back, there's a reality that actually Christ redeems even the most difficult and painful circumstances. And suffering is redemptive because in it God is present. We may not be able to understand why, but when we look at the cross, we understand that we're not alone and that we are understood. And some of the most compelling stories I've heard is from Christians who have been tortured in prison camps in North Korea, completely isolated. And yet in the midst of that isolation, in the midst of that torture, in the midst of that suffering, they've had a vision of Jesus and it's given them the strength and the resilience to know that they are not alone. And actually, that though they can't understand the why of this circumstance, they know that God understands because God has been through suffering. If you want to just turn your Bibles quickly to, to Mark 4. I'm not going to do a, a whole overview of this. There's so much kind of meat and veg and gravy in Mark chapter 4 around just 
the thoughts around spiritual formation and discipleship. I just want to just do a quick run through that in terms of how we understand spiritual formation and how God uses opposition to do that. Oppositions that would seek to frustrate and um, stunt the growth of the gospel in us and through us, and yet God uses that. And actually the cycle in here describes that it describes is not just relevant to when we first receive the seed, which is the word, the revelation of Jesus, the testimony of Jesus, but it's also relevant to actually every single time Jesus wants to take us to a deeper place. He, he sows a truth about who Jesus is, and yet that truth will always be contested. And, it yet, and it's also always established as we prove the truth of God's word in our experience, not just in our aspirations. So if you know Mark Wells, this story of the kind of the seed being sown and the first seed is kind of stolen immediately off the path. The second seed, it kind of settles at a certain depth, but um, then persecution and tribulation comes and it goes away. Then the third one, it's kind of choked and then the fourth seed lands on good soil and it produces a good good. And return. So you've got five stages there. Stage one is the word is sown, and the word is the revelation of Jesus and the invitation to respond. And whenever God is wanting to draw us into a deeper place of intimacy and to kind of form us more in the character and likeness of Christ, there's, there's a revelation of Christ. It could be a simple thing like Jesus, the friend of sinners. It can be something like Father God. There's lots of different ways in which Jesus makes himself known. And that is sown into our hearts. Stage two, the devil steals the word. And Jesus highlights the reality of the spiritual battle, that whenever truth is deposited in us, maybe it's something you've heard here at church, maybe it's something you've read in a different context, there's, there's that depositing, that sowing of truth in your heart. But the enemy seeks to steal it straight away. That's what he does. And, and in that, Jesus is highlighting that there's a spiritual battle. This isn't just kind of a level playing field. There's actually a reality that's deeper and bigger here. There is a spiritual battle. Stage three, tribulation and persecution leads to a falling away of faith and faithfulness. So Jesus identifies part of spiritual formation is the testing through tribulation and persecution, that intimidation of what God is wanting to establish. Stage four is about dilution and distraction, which leads to compromise, which chokes the potential. That's that seed where the cares of the world begin to kind of dilute and choke the life and the potential that's there. And stage five is about perseverance and faithful endurance, which leads to growth and fullness. And you see, when God deposits something in you, it goes through that process when it becomes more real and more deep. And again, you can read that in 1 Peter, expresses that quite a lot. And so in that, Jesus is identifying the things that persecute the outworking of the gospel in us. And therefore, the things that inhibit the ever-increasing circles of intimacy and encounter that Jesus wants to lead us into, of the riches of the life in Christ. And Jesus also identifies what this inheritance of intimacy is at the expense of. It's at the expense of we have to resist temptation to compromise and to consumerism. We have to stand strong in the face of intimidation and humiliation. We have to protect the truth from the enemy that seeks to steal and to destroy. You see, commitment costs, but also the cost reveals the value. The writer of Hebrews expresses understanding of this process and pruning. If you just turn to Hebrews quickly, I think we've also got it on the PowerPoint. But This is Hebrews chapter 10. The item identifies the motivation to endure. So verse 32, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. That relates again to that Mark 4 bit. 
There's a seed, there's a revelation that kind of brought about enlightenment. But then you endured hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Again, it's this whole context of persecution. You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How many of us when we've had stuff pinched are like, glory be, thank you, Jesus. But it says here, you accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So the writer of Hebrews is anchoring the reason that you endured all of these things is that there was something more significant that you knew that you'd received. Something that had been deposited in your heart, a better possession, and not one that moth and, and can, can destroy and the enemy can steal, but an abiding one, an eternal one. Philippians, again, another letter that Paul wrote from prison. Paul talks about, and whatever gain I'd counted, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. That sense of all of his circumstances, that in view of Christ, they change. And in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, Paul identifies the nature and the purpose of persecution, which is to eradicate the witness and the testimony of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 4.4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus. And we all too easily lose sight of the reality that the gospel is not an option of a better life or the offer of an alternative life but it's the offer of absolute life. That's what the gospel is. We're not just in Nottingham commending another idea or another principle. We're actually we're carrying the DNA, the substance, the source of life, the message of Jesus Christ. And it's so easy to lose that. And what Paul says is actually that the God of this world is trying to blind the minds and the eyes of those that they would remain in darkness. But the reason Jesus paid such a high cost it's because there's such a high problem that needs to be resolved. And we need to be mindful in our context not to allow the God of this world to blind us to the rich inheritance that we have, the better possession, the abiding possession, the pearl of great price, the treasure in the field that gets lost in the midst of consumerism. This life, this invitation is at odds, you see, with the status quo of the world. Its values are different. Its goals are different. Its success criteria and its KPIs are different. Life in the kingdom is subversive. It calls us to forgive all, to love all, to give all, to let go of self-interest, to prefer others above ourselves, to live in a way that is too good for this world. It says in Hebrews 11.38, I said I wanted that on my epitaph on my grave. Some live too good for this world. What does it look like to live too good for this world? It lives, it's about living in an alternative reality, living for the goodness of God and, and the purposes of God. And throughout church history, from the early church to now, opposition has sought to persecute the invitation of the gospel through either diluting the message or through destroying the messengers. And if you read your New Testament, you can see that attempt to destroy the messengers first and then you begin to read in some of the latter letters in Galatians this dilution of the messages you know why be so foolish O Galatians when you started like this why are you now deferring or defaulting to this many of the controversies in the early centuries were this diluting of the message 
And all throughout church history, there's this either destroying of the messengers, attacking the church, or this diluting of the message. And it's the same reality today. And what you'll hear about in a moment from Samuel Teresa is a part of the world where the enemy is mostly seeking to destroy the messenger, where 250 million Christians live with persecution. They can't do church like we can do church. Sharing their faith is potentially at the loss of their life, the loss of their homes, the loss of their family, the loss of their community. That's the reality. But at the same time, persecution does exist in our context. And it's mostly about the dilution of the message. It's the compromise. It's the living in a worldly manner. And what we need to do as the body of Christ in this spirit of, of unity is that we need to stand with the body of Christ in places that are suffering the most extreme persecution. But we also need to stand strong in our context and be faithful to Christ. C.S. Lewis famously wrote, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled is convince the world he doesn't exist. You may have also heard that in terms of Kaiser Soze in The Usual Suspects. An experience and existence of the persecuted church exposes the reality of the battle. And as such, the persecuted church are an incredible gift to us. An incredible gift to the body of Christ globally to help us to remain awake and alert. And at the same time, we are an incredible gift to the church that is suffering as we share with them in their suffering and strengthen them in their standing strong. And that's part of the benefit and the blessing of being part of the global body of Christ within which as each part does its work, together we grow into the fullness of the purposes of God. And today really is about giving you the opportunity to play your part, to strengthen our family who are suffering, but also to be strengthened in your resolve and in your heart, in your standing strong with the good news of Jesus Christ in your workplace, in your community, with your neighbours, with your family, with your colleagues in this city, for this nation. How desperately do we need just the truth of the gospel?